I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. My favourite quote from Jane Campion, who talks about this notion that over the age of 40, women become invisible and unfuckable, which is everything that I'm sort of trying to refute. Do you ever feel like a minor character in your own life? stuck living within the confines of other people's version of the world. This can be felt especially strongly by women in a society where they're held to impossibly high standards and often have their actions dictated by the need to avoid or put up with numerous daily microaggressions. And for women of a certain age, you can add to that the prevailing narrative that they're past it, encouraging them to fall into the background. What does it take, then, to fight expectations and stereotypes to become your own protagonist again? Well, amazing Grace Adams might just have the answer. This fierce debut novel tells the story of a 40-something, one-time TV star, Grace Adams, who has lost everything and is also losing it. We join her on a quest to put the pieces of her family back together. The author behind this brilliant novel about motherhood, marriage and female rage is Fran Littlewood and I'm delighted to say that she's my guest today. Chapter 1. The Conflicts of Midlife Grace has a daughter who won't live with her anymore and a husband who's divorcing her and on one hot summer day, stuck in traffic on her way to pick up the cake for her daughter's 16th birthday party, she snaps. She abandons her car and walks away, determined to remind her family why they used to think she was amazing. This is the start of her journey to show that no matter how far we fall, we can always get back up again. Right at the start of the proof copy of the book I was sent, there was also a letter from Fran about going out to vote with her daughter for the first time. It serves as a fascinating backdrop to why Fran feels so passionately about the importance of having midlife heroines in books, television and films. It felt like a big moment. She'd turned 18 and, and that in itself, you know, is Christ, how, how has this happened? Where, where has this time gone? So, yes, we were going to vote this spring. And I, I think it was the local elections. There's been such a kind of musical chairs of politics that I can kind of barely remember now. But, yeah, we were walking down the road and it was bright sunshine. It's fine. I have it really sort of crystallised in my mind because it is it is it's one of those those key moments. And we were headed to the polling station and across the, the busy road, I could feel eyes on me in the, in the way that you can. And I turned to see a sort of man in his 40s look at leering. But it took me the the longest moment to realise that, in fact, he wasn't looking at me. He was looking at my my daughter, my child. Um, so this instant boil of rage, you know, how dare he? You know, she's, she's a kid, she's a child. But then followed so, so swiftly by this, wait, what? Why isn't he looking at me? You know, the last thing you want, you know. But this sort of instant thought following on. So, yes, just an absolute kind of conflict contradiction. I'm a terrible feminist. I don't want this, but I want this. You know, this this awful kind of societal conditioning that has sort of put me in this this horrible position of sort of, yes, rage and then despair and, and shame. Yeah. One of the many, many things I love about Grace, and she is genuinely amazing, is that 
she knows deep down that she is a terrible feminist to the point <laughs> to the point that you know the the trying to be responsible at one point and also fancying the pants off her daughter's teacher at the same time you know she really you really do get this sense of oh god grace if only, if only i could be a proper feminist yes. that, yeah, that yeah. comes screaming through the point at which we meet her for the very first time is really the jumping off point for the novel she has what you have described as her own falling down moment in which it's the hottest day of the year she's stuck in traffic and she has essentially had enough and we learn over the course of the novel why um in the present day it's set over the course of a single day as she walks from her abandoned car to the teenage the 16 year old party birthday party that she's not invited to and is is reminiscing (laughs) she just in that one moment becomes the most pure articulation of her of, of her authentic self because she goes do you know what screw this and she just gets out of the car and leaves and I just in that one moment you had me because I was like you wait what you can't do that you can't just leave a car and like oh right we're doing this we're actually okay well then I'm in now let's 300 pages here we go and I feel like this is just an expression for me of of everything that you know I feel in in the the women around me the midlife women I can't speak for everyone but you know, friends and, and my sisters, this sort of simmering rage that I think we're we're living with the entire time. You know, it's that all things to all people. You are supposed to be, you know, you're, in Grace's case, she's 45. She's supposed to look 25. She's supposed to be the perfect mother, the perfect wife, the perfect daughter, the perfect friend. Her house should be immaculate, you know. And um, she should be the perfect employee. It's um, it's a huge, huge pressure. And it's a pressure that I feel is kind of exclusive to, to women, and particularly women, I think, at, at this stage of life, is sort of held to a far, far higher standard in, in everything, as well as being kind of squeezed on all sides. So, yes, there is this moment when Grace just says, fuck it all she's she's had enough she's she's not she's mad as hell and she's not taking it anymore so yes at that moment as she abandons her car she rips up the social contract you know she goes out there and she says and does all the things we only dream of doing you know these sort of I do this sort of backdrop to sort of women's daily life the microaggressions you know sexual harassment and, and building beyond that you know she um she she fights back she has her main character moment <laughs> she really does because when we see her in flashback we see how she has been conditioned by the role that she is supposed to live and as you say, she's supposed to be a, a wife, a mother, a sister, a best friend, a perfect employee, and all of those things unravel pretty quickly. Spectacularly, yes. Yeah. yeah. So actually this point, and she, you know, she's lost everything. She has nothing left to lose. But interestingly, I'd feel at this point in the book when she abandons the car and as you say, sets off across London and she is going to get to her her estranged daughter, no matter what it takes. It seems like this is the point that she's completely lost control. But in fact, arguably, it's the point that she takes back control finally, you know. There's a brilliant realisation that comes partway through the novel where she said, where she says, I, I'm paraphrasing, but she has bought into the lie that once you reach your 40s, you stop caring. Yes, yes. Uh, you feel that <laughs> yourself, don't you? 
Oh, powerfully. When does it happen? I'm sort of setting now, maybe 55. I think that's that's the moment. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so so much conflict on this as well, because on the one hand, you've got my favourite quote from, from Jane Campion, who talks about this notion that, you know, over the age of 40, women become invisible and unfuckable, which is everything that I'm sort of trying to refute in this book. But yes, also this this feeling of, you know, when are you going to get to the point of um, of feeling like the, the grown up of feeling that you are in control and you can do all of this, this the, yeah, this lie that that Grace has been sold. And I think particularly in relation to there's a there's a brilliant sort of clash of hormones in the book of her and her daughter, this sort of terrible timing of sort of adolescence coming along just as Grace is is hitting perimenopause, which, you know, very much kind of stirs the pot of of I think this sort of assault on your self-esteem, assault on Grace's self-esteem that, that doesn't help with her kind of progressing beyond this this point of feeling like everything's sorted. I, I've I've got it all straight and, you know, I'm the adult. In the last series, I interviewed a writer called uh, Jane Campbell, who's published a, her first book at the age of 80. And it's a collection of short stories called Cat Brushing. And in, and, and in many of the stories, it explores the sexual desire of an older woman and it's it's fascinating it's liberating it's brilliant all at the same time and i got a real sense of that with amazing grace adams because if you think about the person she is trying to be she's trying to please everybody else and when she realizes that the best thing she can do is stop doing that she actually becomes considerably more attractive considerably more appealing considerably more to use your the play on your phrase considerably more fuckable because she is in that one moment totally empowered and that's really attractive yeah yeah I mean I think it comes back to the thing isn't it that she although very much she sees herself in her mind in her head as the protagonist in her own story because she's forced to see herself through the lens of her relationships to others that's hugely disempowering for her so yeah i i, I it's so interesting that the, the contradiction and conflict of this i realize that i i struggle to talk about grace because i want to leap to her her defense i want to say she is still the same kick-ass woman she she ever was you know she's still as funny and smart and ambitious and and all of those things but then i have this voice on my shoulder that sort of says but she's also quite tired, you know, she's also quite overwhelmed and all of those things that that you kind of, that I want to refute in talking about, you know, yes, there's this sort of marginalisation of women in the middle of their lives, there's this sidelining, there's this this personal and political voicelessness, which I think is a real reality that that you don't want to be a reality, but I think these these two things can, can coexist. So, you know, Grace's protagonist, but also, um, as you had pointed out, as a minor character in her own life. And that's something that I have really grappled with. Deborah Levy talks about it interestingly in, her, in the third instalment of her incredible living autobiography. And she talks about this difficulty of um, dealing with, as a writer in, in terms of literary purpose, dealing with two contradictory thoughts. And she says there's this, this feeling that you've done something wrong, you know, if you've got two opposing things that, that co- coexist. And I think there's a lot of opposition in, in Grace's story. But she says, you know, the point of thinking is that it will always muddy the waters, which I, I feel is sort of in many ways a brilliant get out of jail card for this struggle to sort of talk about what you've tried to put across in, in your 
writing in that yes it is muddy it is there's conflict it's contradictory and I think actually I feel this talking about grace and I feel that this is something that very much is in in the midlife space for women these these huge conflicts and, and contradictions that coexist there is a notion of her not thinking throughout her life as, as we see it. One particular episode that really intrigued me is she is this phenomenal linguist. She wins this competition and we establish her or you establish her very quickly as a as a polyglot, which I, I, I'm fascinated by because as writers, we we know we need to love words. Yeah. She gets offered a television job, which <laughs> is the sort of thing that you might spend some time thinking about. And it's, it just says yes immediately <laughs> and signs up there and then to the objectification of a female on television who is both clever and sexy all at the same time. And, and I'm sort of there throughout thinking, Grace, you can say no. You know, it's yeah. OK to walk. And she doesn't. She just she goes with it. And so much of what happens to her. If she were here on this in this conversation, she'd be going, ah, well, the reason I said it's like, yeah, no, yeah. You, you just said yes. right? Yes. Why? Well, but it, yeah. Well, I think actually, you know, this is the whole sort of hashtag me too thing. I think any woman that you speak to and certainly from, you know, Grace, I think she's sort of 28, 29, 30 in the book at the point that that happens. Absolutely, you had have found yourself in the workplace going along with with the, you know the the person who kind of speaks over you in the meeting and and you know articulates the idea that that you've presented ten minutes earlier and then is suddenly you know the the idea. So yes, I think there is that feeling. I think with young women, I mean, I I certainly in the area that that, that I'm writing about that yes, you, there's a lot that that you swallow and and we did swallow. and even as you're kind of in your mind knowing that that this is problematic, I think there there certainly was a feeling that you have to play the game up to a point. and yes, and how awful is that? And again, it comes back to that sort of the, the voicelessness. Chapter two, speechless. Words define Grace Adams. As a polyglot, words are her entire life. And yet on many occasions, you can feel just how much she struggles to find the words to speak to her daughter. And then at her most empowered moments, words tend to fail her and her actions take over. Whether that's abandoning her car, having a meltdown at the chemist's, or smashing someone's car up with a golf club, despite her linguistic skills... She's only truly authentic in the moments where she takes action. And as a writer, I loved this juxtaposition. You know, and Grace herself comes to realise the irony of this fact that she speaks five languages fluently, brilliantly, and, and yet she can't find the words to articulate her her heart sickness, her grief, her her love. And I, I think this is something that happens in families. I think it happens in relationships. I think it happens time again, this sort of heartbreaking miscommunication this this love that that falls through the the gaps in language and in fact I had it didn't make it into the final edition but I had a quote at the, at the top of my manuscript the whole way through which is a quote from Carlo Gibran the Lebanese American philosopher writer and he said between what is said and not meant and meant and not said most love is lost. And I just thought that was such an interesting thing to explore and layering on top of that, as you say, this love of language. And I so enjoyed writing the, the linguistic aspect of this. Um, I think it is at the times when things are most acute, often that that language does fail us, that that we we lose our, our language. I 
my dad died um, almost a year ago now, and I didn't really have the language to process what had happened. And I realised I started reading poems. I'm reading a lot of Mary Oliver, reading um, the Derek Mahon poem that kind of went viral, I think, during the pandemic. Um, and I realised that I was trying to explain to myself really what had happened, the shock of what had happened through other people's words because I didn't have the the words myself. So I think this is a, re- a reality, um, particularly in, in those peak emotional moments that when life gets acute and, and difficult yeah the the quote about where mo- most love being lost um i'm so i'm so fascinated that you said that because there is a real resonance to me at least with her focus on untranslatable words oh yes yeah and it's almost <laughs> i mean it's very cleverly conceived because that's what's happening to her she is not able to translate what she really wants to say to Ben, to her daughter, to her sister, to the teacher, to the fellow mum from the school. And I just find that really interesting because it is so easy to be lost for words and so easy to think of something brilliant after the fact. Absolutely. Yes. Or, you know, this feeling of sort of falling into to cliche and the kind of the meaninglessness of, of what you might say. But, oh, yes, that is esprit d'escalier, isn't it? The thinking of the thing that you should have said five five minutes later, which, oh, you know, absolutely plagues you. Actually, I would say this is another moment when, when Grace does take action, when she becomes the improbable action hero of this. Yes, I think she absolutely puts that into play. She finds her words, she finds her sass. And actually within that, there obviously with sort of the whole action hero thing, there is the, the physicality, you know, it's that I, I love the humour in that idea, you know, and what would have been the sort of, you know, the getting out of the the oozy and the explosives Grace sort of does on a rather a rather a lower but no less spectacular level. But I would argue, Mark, she does also use her words quite marvelously, in that one of the first altercations is with the with the guy up the ladder who catcalls her, and she tells him in, in not just one but in five different languages to go fuck himself. So I, her her language absolutely comes to her rescue there. <laughs> Yes, I, I I must say I I do speak Spanish and I learnt quite a lot oh, from, yeah. your, from your book. <laughs> um, let's talk about her relationship with her daughter. What struck me the most was that Grace is coming to the realization that her daughter is a classic mini me, and is not afraid of taking action or of using words that she perhaps shouldn't do for someone of her age I absolutely loved her I loved the fact that she tells everyone at the school where they can stick their education she literally just walks out of class walks out of assembly and is a brilliantly conceived young rebel train wreck of a girl and I just think she was <laughs> I loved her I absolutely absolutely loved I'm her. I'm so pleased I'm so pleased I think my one of my children I've got I have three teenage girls p- pity me and only one of them that my 13 year old has read half the book at which point I sort of wrestled it off us thinking Christ I, I'm not sure <laughs> I'm not sure this is terribly appropriate but I know that my eldest who is 18 is is really worried that I've written this sort of that I've vilified teenage girls and I I absolutely wanted to write something that that was compassionate you know I wanted that to be compassion um surrounding all these characters while they're kind of wild and and, and irreverent uh, but yes yeah, so I'm pleased to hear you say that that you that you thought she was great she's 
<laughs> I thought she was great and I wanted to help her because she has a problematic relationship with social media and being online, which is clearly something that parents of teenagers will have to face at some point. And I really felt for Grace as she discovers that her daughter has this online persona and is projecting a version of herself that Grace doesn't recognize. That must be extremely difficult for a parent to realize that that is happening. And also you probably be barely powerless to do anything about it before it's too late. I was genuinely concerned for both Grace and her daughter during those mm. Well, I, I think this is the backdrop to every single parent of teenagers, I would say, sort of walking the earth right now. Um, it's incredibly difficult. And it's something, it, it's one of the reasons I wanted to write a teenager into this book, because I felt like, you know, I'd read a lot of coming of age stories. So I'd read young women uh, from their perspective, or you'd read mothering, parenting of very young children. But I felt there was a gap in this sort of 14, 15, 16 space of writing from the perspective of a parent, this something that completely ambushed me, this feeling that much sooner than I, than I expected, you know, you think about the empty nest, but much earlier on, your, your child actually becoming in many ways a, a stranger to you, moving away. And social media, I think, absolutely exacerbates that. You know, when we were younger, we would have we would have had the, the telly, you know, the, the phone. Kids are in their separate rooms on their social media devices. You know, it's 24-hour surveillance for them. There is absolutely no escape from these, particularly for girls, these messages that are coming at them the whole time about how they should look, how they should be, this kind of social comparison, the impossible standard. And yes, absolutely, from the perspective of a parent, having no idea what rabbit holes they are, they are disappearing down. You know, they are in that sense, living this life that you have absolutely no comprehension of, of what's going on. It's, it's a different language, again, entirely. Grace in the book looks at some of her, you know, hacks into her daughter's account finally, and she she's looking at some of her Instagram messages. And and even though she's a linguist, the truncated language and that 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 they are using kind of defeats her at points. So yes, very much kind of you know symbolic in some ways about how I think a lot of parents of of children are feeling now. You know. Yes, I I did love that. It's almost as if she now has to learn a sixth language yes, yeah. in order to understand what the hell this stuff means. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Chapter three, be more Grace. As we've established, the character of Grace stems from Fran's own experiences of midlife, of the rage, the weight of expectation, the guilty feelings of being a bad feminist. As a bit of background, Fran is currently experiencing the menopause while her three teenage daughters are dealing with hormones and periods and entering womanhood. So the parallels are clearly no coincidence. So is Grace the hero Fran wants to be? The best version of herself? This is what I say about her all the time. She absolutely, in the moment that she she rises up, absolutely she's my fantasy self and I think actually interestingly seeing the responses to the book coming in I, I feel I'm not alone in that you know you don't know when you're sort of writing this I was writing this in in lockdown in that very kind of bizarre shutdown experience but in the moments that I was having the sort of most fun writing some of those black humor moments I sort of thought gosh I you know I think women might be punching the air 
reading this and actually people are finding it very relatable I think it is that it's everything you you wish you could do I'm, I'm not sure how it would work out quite if we actually did do those things but certainly I think we all do need to be shouting shouting louder you know it's something actually Isabel Allende's uh, memoir manifesto that, that I have been reading recently, Soul Woman, she talks about this. She talks about in relation to the crisis of violence against women and girls, which is something that I obviously tackle in the book because I didn't see how I could write a day in the life of a woman without, without writing that violence into it. And she says, remember, uh, no one gives you what you what you want. We have to seize what we want. And I think it's that, that this is exactly what, what Grace does. She goes out and she seizes um, what she wants, which is something that I think, you know, writing, I was writing post Me Too, but pre Sarah Everard. And it felt, you know, this building of a movement. But I very much felt after Sarah Everard and obviously, you know, the quashing of the vigil, but also People were talking about it. People were talking about it on social media. Um, kids at school were talking about it. But it felt that it was something that fizzled very quickly. It felt as though it was the start of a movement that we hoped would go on. But to me, that it, it felt as though it didn't. So it is something that is necessary. But how do we sustain it? I think it's really interesting and, and interesting in the context of the book as well to look at the menopause movement, because that is something that I would say, absolutely, you know, if you... Two years ago, when I first started writing this, it seemed it would have seemed extraordinary. You know, nobody was was talking about it in what I kind of now call the pre-Divina era. But this is something that has kind of the taboo of it, the stigma of it. These very courageous women, actually, in the public eye, that have stood up and have spoken about it. And now we've got, you know, whether or not anything will happen in you know, the cross-parliamentary committee reporting on it and, and making suggestions. And it really has kind of moved into the public consciousness hugely. So I feel if you kind of look to that, you know, there, there is a possibility for, for change, for, for cultural shifts. But it's certainly something that I think we need for women and girls across the board and specifically as I'm writing about kind of midlife women this sort of this rebranding it made me think of Sarah Everard certainly it also made me think of the very recent protests in Iran yes about yeah. the way that women should dress and you get a sense wherever in wherever you look in the world this notion of this simmering rage and the fact that this could explode at any moment and i hope it does yeah, because I think that it's absolutely necessary, and I also would say I don't think that the messages in your book are uniquely applicable to female or solely applicable to female. I I got a lot of empowerment from her, you know. That okay. I I thought about things that are happening in my own life where I where I would go, what would Grace do? You know, and, <laughs> I and love I, it. <laughs> and I, I mentioned to you this notion of be more grace. Absolutely. It's, it's Brilliant. And I will be taking this, yes, as my catchphrase from now on. I love it. I'll be writing it into books. That, you know, if I'm asked to sign them, be more grace is, is fabulous. We oh, can you start, should. Yes. When you do start book a movement. Write that in. <laughs> I've been looking. I've been looking for the perfect soundbite from, and, and this is definitely it. Be more grace. <laughs> but no, I'm really interested that you say that, and I think there is this, this, this. You know, you talk about a voicelessness. I think with you know the political lurch to the right, you know, in every aspect, and and I think you know it, it feels as though you're sort of not even pushing a rock up the hill. You know, you talk about kind of you know erosion of public services, climate change, plague, war. You know, it just there's there's an essential powerlessness that 
I feel actually we're sort of so crushed by capitalism. We're also exhausted by all these things that we're supposed to be to everybody else, that there's no time to kind of look outside. Like, oh, you look outside and think, oh, shit, you know, we really ought to be doing something about, about the climate. Why is nobody doing anything? But why do you feel that there's there's no time to do anything? We're all trying to pay our hiked mortgages and... Uh, yeah. Well, as you say, everyone's just knackered, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And there needs to be a corrective, and we know there needs to be a corrective, but it needs to come from us. You know, I we we talks about this, doesn't he? People should know their own power. You know, there needs to be an uprising. We need yeah. to be more grace. <laughs> we need to be more grace, completely. <laughs> but being grace is exhausting, and, and on, the, on the notion <laughs> on the notion of being exhausting, this book will be out in the wild in January next year. So I kind of feel bad about asking you this next question, but what's next? As if you haven't already done enough, what, <laughs> what, what happens next? I know it is coming out in many different geographies. I know that you have also um, taken an option on the television rights. I don't want to you know, pre-guess what might happen with that. But where do you go next as a writer? Are you continuing Amazing Grace's journey or is there another amazing woman that you're starting to write about? <laughs> God, it's the difficult second album, isn't it? My goodness. So I, yeah, so I, I, I have started the the second book, but in fact, I, I'm going to write something. I, I didn't want to write sort of a single character because I, I felt there was a danger that I would just write Grace all over again. So this is more of a kind of ensemble piece. So it's, it's a, it's a book about three sisters and and sibling rivalry, and. Yeah, expressing the taboo of a, a father who inadvertently reveals that he has a, a favourite child. So sort of exploring um, and investigating that, which which has been kind of a good conversation starter actually with people that I've to everyone has, has their sort of sibling rivalry stories and their sort of the taboo of the favourite child story to, to bring on board <laughs> the psychological damage that everybody is is carrying. It's, yeah, there's a lot to mine. There is. <laughs> and now I just have to write the rest of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yeah, that, that classic all I have to do is finish yes. the damn book. <laughs> you, you mentioned that your your 13-year-old had read half of it before you wrestled it off her. Did, did, did she give you any feedback as a reader on the first? Stuff. that's interesting no I think she enjoyed it it's as you know nice short chapters a good old a good old flick flick through no they're, they're all of them completely underwhelmed by the whole thing and just wish that I would stop talking about it and comparing it to everything we've been watching the brilliant drive to survive on on tv the formula one thing I don't know if you've seen it and every moment I'm kind of like stop it stop it I could absolutely draw an analogy between this and the and the writing process <laughs> well the mistake the mistake you've made is that you're playing the wrong character in your daughter's lives you're not supposed to be doing that you're supposed to be playing their mum stop it <laughs> Amazing Grace Adams is out in January 2023. It is an absolute triumph. It will make you laugh, cry and leap out of your chair and punch the air. Fran Littlewood, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Oh, likewise. Thank you so much. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Fran Littlewood for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Grace is a linguist who often gets lost for words. It may seem like an odd contradiction. But real people live conflicted and contradictory lives, and that means authentic characters should do too. Society can make many people feel invisible. Women of a certain age, certainly, and many other minority groups too. If you feel like your own story has been brushed under the proverbial carpet, remember that as a writer, you have the ability to make the unseen be visible again. And finally, think of the person you wish you could be. 
What would you say? What would you do? Draw from your authentic experiences and then reimagine the best version of yourself in your next character. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Additionally, you can sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events are not recorded and not repeated and will put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. That's it for Series 6. Goodbye for now, stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 